Sunday, and it's good to know that God does save, and we will reflect on that at the end of our gathering briefly. But just as Courtney mentioned, uh, we are continuing and concluding our series, God Roars. It's been an adventure in the book of Amos, that's what I will say. Um, A very fun series, a challenging series, another opportunity, just like that song said, to recognize the ways in which God calls us higher. Uh, to discern what God would have us be and therefore do as a people. And uh, it's, it's undeniably a conversation about justice. And one of the things we talked about last week and really every week is what is God inviting us into as it comes to justice both individually and collectively as a people? In fact, we actually created space last week in the message to discern this question. What beautiful and actionable mission, i.e. justice, is God stirring within us, both you individually and us collectively. And we even created space to just pause and pray. And then after that pausing and praying, we shared with one another with the hopes that we would keep each other as a people accountable. Accountable. And that was the hope, that we would continue to create spaces like this, spaces of stillness and quiet, uh, minute retreats, as I call them, which is not to be confused with mini-retreats, but minute-retreats, where we take a few minutes here, a couple minutes there, and say, hey, Lord, what are you saying to us? What do you have for me as I live a daily life of mission? It's a conversation about justice, curly justice and righteousness. And there's that key passage that Amos quotes that MLK also repeats, uh, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And that word justice is the Hebrew mishpat, which also has been translated judgment. It's about corrective action and legal processes. It's about honorable integrity in regards to societal order. Righteousness is the Hebrew word tzedakah, which is more relational. It connotes this idea of equitable relationships, redemptive connection with creation, and in the context of God's people, Israel, about their covenant relationship with God. So you've got corrective action and justice, and you've got righteous relationships in terms, regardless of social order. It's about corrective action and righteous relationships. It's undeniably a conversation about justice. And as we've been reading, if it's a conversation about justice, it's also about injustice, And it's undeniably a conversation about judgment of injustice. God's people are accused of uh, abuse of the poor, of debt slavery, of sexual trafficking and abuse, denying legal representation to victims, mainly the marginalized, and later child sacrifice. And there are modern parallels of this happening today. There are. And the harsh words we received in this book is God's impending response to those who simply refuse to repent. Repent just means to turn towards God. It's God pursues and pursues and patiently pursues, and the people resist and resist and outright resist. And what is predicted in this is this day of the Lord, a.k.a. Judgment Day. Uh, Judgment Day. And, And this is... Even as I say the word judgment, this is where feelings can arise. The topic of judgment brings within us questions, feelings, almost just thoughts. Topics of final judgment, just cause, and eternal destinies seem to offend many people. 
It feels offensive, and despite all the mental gymnastics that we can go through, it's pretty clear that the Bible and Jesus even speaks of these topics, that without exception, all sin. Well, one exception is Jesus. Uh, I sin, you sin. And the call is for us to repent, to turn to God, and to trust God, and this is huge, is to rely on God's immeasurable power. Even so, we balk at the conversation of eternal destinies. We don't like it. And questions arise within us. Questions like, how do you reconcile a God of love with eternal punishment? Is it punishment? Or is it inevitable consequences? What is just judgment? And did Jesus really talk about hell? Did he talk about hell? I mean, what questions do you all have? I'm sure you have questions. It's okay if you don't have it, but just to take hold of that. If you want to say one out loud, that I, I want to validate our questions. You can say it out loud. You don't have to. It is wild. Jesus does talk about hell more than anybody else in the scriptures, about those who deny God's patient mercy. And in contrast to all like the devil and pitchforks and fire and hell, these Greek and Norse depictions of hell, there are a lot of modern analogies of what that can be. Analogies such as a quarantine or Tupperware or a no thanks, I'm good on my own zone. And uh, there's some serious scholarship out there online that's not really serious, like TikTok influencers and Time Magazine that'll really provide you some uninformed scholarship and with the, reality, with the hope to deny any reality of hell or retribution, internal judgment. But the counter-argument, there's many, but I'll say one, the counter-argument inevitably leads to this idea that to deny eternal destinies, to deny hell, to deny judgment really is to deny injustice. To deny judgment is to deny injustice. And that doesn't sit well with many. The world is filled with injustice. There's another school shooting this week. And when you read the headlines, it makes your hearts break or in the very least wince. And if we've learned anything from the book of Amos, God ultimately stands against injustice. God stands against injustice. So as I was reading this last passage and I wanted to encapsulate the series together, I won't do twice as long a sermon, but I had this first outline that I felt like I wanted to share with you. And then I have a second outline that I'm really interested in. So this first outline is a good way for me to share, kind of goes through the series a bit, but why judgment? The question is why judgment? And um, even before I read the text, I'm just going to share it with you because it'll pop up in the text. We'll have had that conversation. It reflects on Jesus's teachings. Revelation has a note there, but I just felt like, yeah, it'd be good just to recap a bit through this first outline. Why judgment? Well, all injustice will stand before God one day. That's why judgment, that all injustice will stand before God one day. Justice is good news because it, it reveals a movement towards final justice rooted in love. This idea of judgment of God, this day of the Lord, the final day, it's not some cranky last minute move from a sore loser. That's not what it's about. It's about removal of a cancer, separating those who truly choose life and therefore give life from those who fatally choose death and bring death. Miroslav Volf, uh, in his uh, seminal work, Exclusion and Embrace, he witnessed firsthand the brutality of his people in the War of the Balkans. He saw his people killed. He saw cities being destroyed. 
He has a fascinating perspective on the freedom that comes with the belief in divine judgment. He wrote this. If God were not angry at injustice, then God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence, us taking justice in our own hands, which is truly revenge, by ourselves, is to insist that judgment is legitimate only when it comes from God. So all judgment, all injustice will stand before God one day. Uh, you know, this is like one of the first points of our series. The second one, why judgment, is God's mercy is available today. Judgment is going to happen one day. That may upset us, but we have to realize that we're living in a time of mercy, that today is a day of mercy. Uh, when you pan out of Amos, when you pan out of the whole meta narrative of Scripture, you look at history by and large, we're living in a day of mercy, a day to respond to God. Even Peter, as he unpacks this day of the Lord, as he concludes his second letter in the New Testament, he, he's, he's responding to people in verse 9 of chapter 3, people who are like wanting God's judgment to come because these are people who have been oppressed, people are hurting, and, and they're like, dude, this needs to happen now. This needs to happen now. And, and Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is a day where we can turn towards God. This is a day of mercy. Third point of why judgment. One, all justice will stand before God one day. God's mercy is available today. And God's justice and mercy and love, which fuels his judgment, gives rise to our own justice and mercy and love. Uh, the judgment that we see, that we're going to see in Amos 9, this isn't about the final day of the Lord. It's an allusion to that. But this is a day of the Lord, an impending judgment that's coming to God's people because they denied their calling. They saw their calling as, as one of being a military power, and they forewent their problem. I'm sorry, they forewent their calling to uplift the marginalized, the quartet of the vulnerable that we talked about in years past, the poor and the marginalized, the widow, the orphan. They're meant to uplift and serve these people, the alien or immigrant or sojourner. They chose the sword, and so they live by the sword and will die by the sword. This is all rooted in their denial. And yet, still, there's a faithful remnant that God will keep who will keep the movement going as they wait in anticipation for God's final saving work. So that's a quick sermonette of why judgment. It's a good sermon. I like it. It's fine. Um, it wasn't the one I was completely interested in, but I think it recaps where we've been in this series. I think what I'm interested in is why do so many resist judgment? And this won't be a comprehensive conversation, but I think it's a helpful reminder, and these points will also uh, arise uh, from our conversation today. Why do so many resist judgment? This is where I'm going to read our scriptures, just one chapter today. Um, I'm going to offer some commentary as we go because this is foreign territory for a lot of us as we read the prophets. When was the last time you guys read the book of Amos other than in church? It's been a while. It's been a while. So here we go. This is chapter 9 of Amos. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. None will escape. See, God is poised here on earth. The altars here that he's referring to are the ones that Jeroboam built and the northern king of Israel, false altars to false gods. 
And, and that is true. They're also a prophetic allusion to the false altars that we have. What's demonstrated here is the inescapability of judgment. Verse two, though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, for there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. It's really easy to preach this passage. It's not. Well, what's being said here is that the unjust will not find escape. It's like that Johnny Cash song. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Anybody know that song? Go and tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider. You tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, sooner or later, God will cut them down. All right. I was going to have the kids sing that one, but it didn't go over well. It didn't go over well with people. just didn't seem to work. I was like, come on, Mac, you can do this. Heavy beat. Um, here's what I do want to read. Because I love God's love. It says here in Psalm 33 that the eyes of the Lord, we just read, if I keep my eye on them for harm and not for good, we also have to read Psalm 33. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. This is a deep reverence. One, those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. There's, there's a dichotomy happening here. These, the eyes on those who commit injustice and and live in sin, which is just a failure to love God and others, is different from God's eyes on those who trust on him. Verse five, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts. All who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in, heavens, in the heavens and sets his foundation on the earth. He calls for the water of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. So this is a hymnic reminder that God is not some critically distant God. This is not a God who started up the universe and walked away. This is a God who is actively participating in his creation. He's here. He's concerned about his creation, which leads incredibly to this next statement that you cannot miss. Are you not the Israelites? The same to me as the Cushites. Cush, if you do any history, is an area near Egypt, origins of humanity. Are you Israelites not the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? We know about that. That's the Passover event. But then he also says this. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaptur, and the Arameans from Kerr? There's some huge implications here that he's saying he's not just the God of the Israelites, he's the God of all people. There's mystery in this. Black and white thinkers don't like this statement. Amos is prophesying that he's concerned over all people. And it gives to some speculations, knowing one can be a blood Israelite and still be an awful person. Can one also be a non-Israelite in this case and be righteous? I mean, Jesus talks about this. People who know the Lord by name, but aren't true followers. 
and people who didn't even know or see the Lord and are true followers. How do you determine that? How do you do that? We'll talk about it later. Mystery. Mystery. But not just complete mystery. I want to give that uh, note. Verse 8, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. Though this has been hard to read, the headline is this, that God's got justice and judgment. Well, I'll say that again. Let me say this right. God's got judgment covered. It's not up for me to judge. It's not up for you to judge. God's got it covered. Now, when I say that, does that mean we are silent? Nay, it doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. It means that in mercy, we share God's mercy to all. As recipients of mercy, we share God's mercy. Verse 8 continued, I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Again, God's mercy. He has a plan to restore and redeem. Sin doesn't have the final victory. God's mercy informs God's sovereignty. Verse 9, for I will shake, I'm sorry, excuse me again. Verse 9, for I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as a grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. So there was an earthquake that they mentioned in the beginning of this book that we talked about. This is a bit of a, uh, an allusion to that. That's going to happen in two years. But it's also about our consequences shaking us, about even our own sin leading to our own consequences. And in that moment where we experience the consequences of our sin, both personally and collectively, that actually, too, is an opportunity, just as this book has shown, an opportunity to turn towards God. When the people of God live in exile, when they live in this long waiting, when the pain comes, are they going to turn to God or continue to live in denial? Do we as a people turn to God or live in denial? And this is what that denial can look like. Verse 10, all the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. That's not going to happen. This is the denial that so many live when they choose their life, they choose their sin over God's love and God's justice. Denial is about living a lie that eventually deceives yourself. Uh, we deny personal injustice and our part in collective injustice. But to live in truth is about receiving mercy and, and understanding that mercy belongs to others. When you don't like someone, that is a person who constantly needs God's mercy because guess what? That's who we are. Verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. Do you feel what's going on here? It's a change. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls. I will restore its ruins and I will rebuild it as it used to be so they may possess the remnant of Edom. That's Israel's enemy. They were long in. They come in. And all the nations that bear my name, hey, everybody, come in, declares the Lord who will do these things. When we look at God's judgment, it's always paired with God's restoration. That God's goal through all this is to be our life and to be our shelter. That's what God is saying. I am here. I am meant to be your shelter. So what does that life look like? What does that shelter look like? Verse 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. The reaper is just somebody who reaps the soil. It's not like a grim reaper. 
but it is a bit, I guess, but that's not the scriptures. And the planter by the one trading grapes. What does that mean? So the, the reaper is gonna overtake the plowman and then the planter is gonna overtake the one who's treading grapes. Basically, it's saying that reaping and sowing will be happening simultaneously, that there's gonna be a continuous supply of food. It's gonna be dope. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. What is this restoration? What is this life with God at? It's not some hedonist vacation in the clouds. This is not what it is. A restored, it's a restored creation. It's where vines will grow. It's where there will be purposeful work for you and I. It's where you will smell the soil. The sun will rise. A harvest will come. Rest will be available. And work will be there. It's not a land of scarcity. It's the kingdom of God. Each will have their own place. Each will have their own part. Verse 15, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. From the land I have given them, says the Lord. So Israel is a recipient of this judgment, of this day of the Lord, and they will be restored, never to be destroyed again. And that, my family, is the book of Amos. You did it. We've read the book of Amos. So back to the question, why do so many resist judgment? Why do so many resist judgment? We talked about why judgment. This is a conversation I'm interested in. Here's the first one. We talked about mystery. Remember that mystery of God being the God of all people and black and white thinking? Well, here's, here's what I'm going to say to that. In our modern age, and I just want to note these points, I'm an intuitive thinker, so I'll make sure it's not clear. My wife will tell me. She'll give me a wink if it's not clear. Yeah. In our modern age, the mystery or gray areas give us a false sense of superiority. In our modern age, when there's mystery gray areas, we say, doesn't make sense with our false sense of superiority. Because when there's mystery and sometimes not fully answerable questions, it's tempting opportunity to say, well, that's why it doesn't make sense. If you can't answer everything, I'm above that. Was that clear? Feels pretty clear, right? Yeah. Without getting into a deep philosophical conversation, I think what we need to realize is that every worldview has its own mystery to it. It's unfully answerable questions. I think what's also true is that most faith and most worldviews are based on faith, including our own. It's not antithetical. It's not contrary to logic. We know, the wise among us know that we're humans. They recognize that we're finite. And because of that, we are evidentialists. We're empiricists. We look at the facts, we look at the data, and we make a decision on that. And we do that with our faith. It's not about some blind leap. Faith is actually just confidence and trust and reliance and what we have reason to believe is true. We see the evidence, and we make steps that way. And when we study the evidence, we can, we can ground ourselves in our worldview and we can use both that reason and trust to, to attempt to give an answer to unanswerable questions. Questions like, what about those people who are indoctrinated into other worldviews or beliefs? What about those who never taught right from wrong? 
What about people who are doing kingdom work but are part of other faith backgrounds, like Mahatma Gandhi? I just read some great stuff about Gandhi this week. Uh, or Ho Fen Shen, the Chinese Schindler. Or, or like a modern example of Malala Yousafzai. She's that female Nobel Peace Prize winner who won for human rights advocacy for children as well as women. What about those people? And here's what I'll say about that. Taking reason and trust involved. And I want you all to do this as well. If God brings judgment, that means God is just. And I believe everybody has a fair shot. I mean, the scriptures are clear that God is just and fair, Psalm 25, 8. If God is the God of all people, in his wonderful ways, he's intimately involved with them. It's not about, I'm, I'm not gonna go there. What I, this doesn't mean I'm a Christian universalist. It doesn't mean, I think, like in universal reconciliation to all people, that, that, that's against people's own wills. Some people don't want anything to do with God. It also, I believe in the blood of Christ needed to atone for every person. I want to make that clear. But for those people who don't have that clear opportunity to say that one prayer that we believe leads to lasting salvation, let's just erase that. For those people who have encountered the living God in the way that we think they need to encounter the living God and follow the living God, I think God is fair and just. And I'm going to surrender the results to God. We all have to make a decision based on the evidence that we've been given. And that's the most important part of it, is what do we do with the evidence that we've been given? What do we do with the information we've given? That's what matters. What about me? What about us? My life? Our sin? And that leads a bit to the second point. Why do so many people resist judgment? I did that heady one. I don't remember what I said. It was, in our modern age, gray areas give some people a false sense of superiority. I don't have to deal with it because there's not a completely answerable answer to that. The second one, which is really about the first one, is our denial creates a barrier for us to grieve our sin. I wrote, our denial disallows us to grieve our sin. I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote that. Basically, our denial is one of the greatest barriers to grieving our sin. Denial is. Grieving both sin personally as well as collectively. And grieving our sin, it's not really common vernacular in the church today, that you don't hear that a lot, but I actually think it's really a wonderful phrase. It's not about shame. It's really about dignity, grieving the ways in which we've lived below our dignity. Dignity is just the way that we apply the identity that God gives us. It's the way in which we live out our calling. It's probably one of the most healthy conduits of grief, grace is to say, let's grieve our sin. It's about longing for the light and leaving the darkness. It's about grieving, living below our dignity, below God's dignity and others. It's about shared dignity and how others don't have that. This is what it means to grieve our sin. It's actually dignifying to recognize that we can grieve. There are a lot of reasons for denial. There's shock, like, it can't be me, it can't be us. There's comparison, I'm not as bad as Courtney, she's better. There's self-justification, have you seen all that I've done, all the soup kitchens I've worked at? And there's blame, blame is huge in our modern psychology. We have blame for everything. I'm just a product of my circumstances. I'm a product of my family of origin. 
I'm a product of my teachings or my socioeconomic realities. I'm a product of my diet. I'm a product of my hormonal balance or imbalance. And true as it is, there are factors and hurting people do hurt people. But even the choice to blame our circumstances is a choice. We all have choice. At same point, at some time, we've got to say, hey, that one was on me. I made that mistake. I can blame, 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 but this is, that was my choice. I'm failing to love God and others through my actions. And when you do that, you actually regain your dignity as well as your volition. Why do so many resist judgment? Why do so many resist judgment? This one's, this is a surprising one that keeps popping up, is our misconceptions of the afterlife have created some undesirable options. Some of us don't think life with God feels good because we have these ideas of what life with God is like, heaven and clouds and all that. And this is a large conversation, one that I'm willing to have offline, and perhaps it'll come. But the truth is, we get heaven and hell wrong a lot of times because we get heaven and earth wrong. Because we get heaven and earth wrong. Heaven and hell, when you read the scriptures, they're never like paired together. Like if you were to type in heaven and hell into like your search bar of Bible Gateway, there will be no results pull up. If you were to pull up, that doesn't mean hell doesn't exist. Heaven's there in some, a lot of places. And I'll, I'll tell you where it is. Hell is also there. But they're not like these dueling realities. I remember going, my friends took me this play, Heaven's Gate and Hell's Flame. Everybody hear that? It's like this traveling show where like there's Judgment Day and it goes through like 20 different people. And they show their life. And then they ever go to heaven where it's like God's on one side or hell where there's a devil on one side. As if they're like these two powers that are competing when they're not. The strength of hell, if there is any, and I don't think there is, there's just self-justification and an inability to grieve, uh, compares palely, it doesn't compare at all to heaven. Heaven and earth, it was even our passage day, if you type that in your space bar, they're found almost 200 times. And I'm not here to, I'm not, I'm not here to erase hell, I'm just trying to help us understand what heaven is so that we can understand a bit of what hell is. Make sense? You see it in verse 14. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Heaven, which is really the kingdom of God, it's, it's way more gritty, way more earthy than we think. It's about oneness, mutual reciprocity, mutually serving, Everyone having enough, no one having too little, no one having too much. It's about just a willingness to do the dishes when the dishes come, gladly. Enough love, enough space, enough purpose and sacrifice, enough rest and room, even enough wine. And that wine is actually a symbol for wine. That's what it's a symbol for, wine. Hell, conversely, is reserved for those who refuse this type of living. That maybe wouldn't say it out loud, but don't like the idea of have everybody having too little, not having too little or not having too much. It's re re reserved for those who refuse this type of God. And C.S. Lewis says this in his amazing work, The Great Divorce. It's one of the most prolific understandings of judgment. 
hell and heaven, there's a picture of it. He says, if hell is locked, perhaps it's locked from the inside. Because people choose this type of consequence or punishment over shared dignity and justice and sacrifice. It can't go without saying that people who refuse sacrifice would not like heaven and earth. There's a lot we could talk about. You can hit me up anytime offline, but I have appreciated the words of Brother Lawrence. He, he writes that book, Practicing the Presence of God. He's just a very common and at the same time uncommon Carmelite monk who served in a kitchen and worked on shoes. And he wrote this. Yes, if by any chance one could love God in hell and he, being God, wished to place me there, I would not be concerned about it. For he would be with me and his presence would make it a paradise. I'm not saying that's what's gonna happen. I'm just saying that's what heaven's about. Hell is the exclusion of God. Heaven is a very earthy, loving relationship with God as well as with God's people who just love loving. They love giving freely. They love opening their home, sharing their food, doing the dishes, seeing those in the street who don't have a space and creating space for them. Those who choose a life of stepping out and giving a shelter to others. This is why we love Jesus, whose love sent him to the cross, which is our shelter. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we celebrate Palm Sunday. The, the cross is many things. The cross, as a theological term, is recapitulation. It gives us the better story. The cross, by theological terms, is penal substitution. It atones for our sins as we turn and rely on God. Nothing we can do. It's all about God's grace, his acceptance, that he loves us, and we receive that freely and continue to rely on God, our Savior, as our Lord. It's a cross that defeats the powers that steal, kill, and destroy. It's a cross that crushes the head of the enemy. This is Christus Victor. It's a cross that gives us a model with how to live. It is our moral ethic. The, or a, it is the better moral ethic. It's a cross that tells us that God loves loving us time and time again. You see that in scripture. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For God so loved the world. We love because God first loved us. That's your theological review of the cross. It is the better story, the saving work, the power of God, the model, and the message. And the night before he was betrayed, Jesus gave us this wonderful act that involved wine and bread, two amazing gifts from God. And we are going to take the bread and wine today to celebrate God's saving work in our life. So with that, I'm going to um, hand out the, the elements. And if you trust Jesus' saving love, you're free to receive. Uh, I don't want to exclude anybody from the table. At that being said, this is an opportunity for us for really to celebrate and commemorate what Christ has done and is doing in our lives. Is doing in our lives. And to be clear, this is real wine. We have moved to real wine because they actually did that in the past. And so we want to celebrate that. There is, though, understandably, if you don't want wine for whatever reasons, the ones that are separated have grape juice. The ones are separated. And there is also bread. This is sourdough bread. Anybody gluten-free here? Gluten-free. We have uh, an alternative. Sourdough is um, 
It's really good, though, probiotically. It kind of defeats that. I just want to name that. <laughs> but I'll make sure I, I'll get you uh, something comparable. So this begins Holy Week, which commemorates so much. One of them is Maudie Thursday, where Jesus gave us this lasting and final covenantal sacrifice, this symbol that represents God's mercy. And so I'm just going to read us the scriptures, and we are going to take and eat as I... Thank you, sir. Brilliant. Get to the wine. We will. Lord, help us. Although that's what people are saying. People in pain, they're saying, Lord, get to the wine. Most scholars, are, most of the world, they're not offended by books of Amos. They see it as a book of solace. We talk about that. It's typically the scholarship of, of the West, those who have plenty, not all in the West, but those who do, that are take offense at judgment and all this. So may we in this time, as we eat from one bread, recognize our communion with God and communion with all believers in the world as we read uh, Matthew. While they're eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. So take and eat. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Take and drink. So I actually wrote my prayer down. I typically don't do that, but I just was really inspired to write a prayer. And so as I do that, I'm just going to invite the band up. So you just pray with me. Lord, we do trust you, good judge. We do stand before you, and we see you looking at us, Lord, with open arms, with love rooted in your mercy as you wait for us. And Lord, we thank you for the cross, which tells us that you step down from your judge's chair, from your rightful place, removed your robe, and you were stripped naked. You were abandoned by your friends. You were ridiculed, God. You bled and died in order that you would pay our debt. You're the judge who's, who, who says the judgment, then you take off your robe, you come out, and you pay our debt freely and lovingly. But that's not where it stops, God. Because you rose on the third day, you gave us a place. You took us in your home so that you can feed us, God, and teach us, and most importantly, continue to love us so that we, by your grace and mercy, can follow your ways. Slow as we are to learn, Lord, thank you that you are quick to love. And by your power, God, and our humility, would you show us your path forward today? And God, would you please continue to heal us? There are hurts that we have had done to us. There's hurts that we've done to others, which in turn have hurt us. Lord, would you heal us so that we can be wounded healers as you are mighty Jesus, our wounded healer. 
We thank you, God, of course, for living, for dying, for rising, and for giving us life. You give life every day, Lord. You're the one who wakes up the dead. So, Lord, we praise you, God, as the kind and tender, patient, loving Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to just mention a few next steps later, but I would... Just as Courtney said, I would, I would ask you to join us on Friday night for the Good Friday experience where we can take time and reflect on the cross together. And yeah, I, there's people we are doing, really sharing in a matter doing the lion's share of the work, but they're creating something for us to, to spend more time reflecting on God's saving work. So please join us if you can. The window's five to eight. It's only about an hour long, give or take. So um, we'd love for you to join us here in this chapel. And with that, we have one more song. All right. Well, as we go through the book of Amos and um, we reflect this week, Holy Week, um, my prayer for for all of us is um, just to return to, um, as this next song talks about, Great Are You, Lord. Um, That's the name of this song. Um, That he he is the one who gives life. Um, brings light and gives hope as we sing. And may we just remember that um, through, as we study this, through some difficulties, um, maybe some frustrations, um, that we will just look ahead to the hope um, that all the earth will shout his praise um, as we await for um, his resurrection. You give life 